from Relay FM. This is Download, posted Thursday, November 29, 2018. This is episode 81. Elvis is in the building. Welcome to Download, a weekly look at the most interesting stories in the world of technology and other stuff you care about. I'm Jason Snell, and later in the show, I am going to be joined by Patrick McGovern and Glenn Rifkin. They work together on a book called Future Forward, which is all about a very, very interesting gentleman named Pat McGovern, Patrick McGovern's father, who is the guy who founded IDG, where I worked for more than a decade, uh, and is an amazing figure you may not know about from the world of tech and tech media. Uh, His life story is pretty amazing, and uh, we're going to get into that with them later, but we're going to just mix up the format today, and instead, the most interesting stories of the week, as picked by me, are going to be discussed with me and Stephen Hackett, who is here. Hello. <laughs> hey, Jason. It's mixing it up this week. We're I'm doing, excited. It's a little different. Yeah. We got an interview, it's different, and then we're going to talk, and we're, it's all going to be fine. Uh, I missed you. you. You know, it's been three weeks since you were on download. It's been a long time. I know. I was on vacation, then it was the holiday, so we're back together, uh, but in this in this weirdo in-betweeny episode. Yeah, but exactly there's still right. There's still lots of stuff to talk about, uh, so we should... Maybe we should dive in. Yeah, we should probably talk about it. So Apple, uh, we'll start there. You and I talk about Apple a lot, but there's some Apple news that I think we need to talk about. Now, earlier this week, the Supreme Court uh, said that, or they didn't say anything, right? They listened and asked questions, and then everybody else intuits from that how they're feeling. And the feeling was that they're going to let this lawsuit go forward. And uh, that is a fascinating little quirk, too. There's so many ways to get the story wrong. I'm going to try to get it right. So what the Supreme Court was hearing was a question about whether a lawsuit should proceed which is different from uh, whether the plaintiff or defendant should win. And the lawsuit is from a a people, uh, it's a class action, but it's people who are app buyers in the app store. And they have sued Apple saying that Apple is using monopolistic practices. So basically, they're using their monopoly over the app store on iPhone to then cost them money by having the prices be inflated. Um, so they're using their control of their platform to uh, to take 30% from developers, which causes uh, apps to be more expensive. Now, by the way, I, I find it hilarious that the argument here is that apps cost too much. <laughs> Um, yeah. Okay. That's the opposite of what developers say. Anyway, so the argument is, uh, do they, there's a technical antitrust argument here about like, are they the, um, are they truly being harmed by Apple or by the developers? Are they buying from the developers with Apple as a middleman or, or is Apple reselling them? There's some esoteric law here that goes back to a case involving bricks and the company that sold bricks and controlled the whole thing. It's this whole thing that kind of unravels around it. But the point seems to be that the Supreme Court is inclined to let the lawsuit go ahead, which would allow it to go back to a lower court and they would have the actual lawsuit about Apple's practices in controlling the App Store. And so we're a long way from 
any sort of judgment that might make Apple have to change its app store practices, opening it up, uh, reducing, allowing sideloading, reducing what they ask of developers. There are a lot of possible things that could come out of it, but it is uh, a step along the way. So I think it's interesting, like uh, to have this in the courts, a fundamental question about whether Apple's uh, policies involving the app store are not just right, but legal. It's it's wild, right? Like the the app store is something we're all so used to. We all use it, and this if this moves forward and, and it, it ends up being bad for Apple, it could fundamentally change. Um, ben Thompson has been writing about this uh, for his uh, members at Stratechery, and he made a really interesting point comparing it to the Google Play Store, which I'm not as familiar with. But one thing that is fundamentally different between the two is that. On the Google Play Store, places like Amazon can sell you ebooks, and that isn't a thing in the iOS App Store. And Apple or Google doesn't get a cut of that, of course. They're just providing the platform, and then Amazon or whoever can load in basically like web pages into their app and have a store there. And and some of Apple's rules make that more difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you take the thirty percent cut, even out of the question, right? And and that I think I do have a problem with. I do wish that Apple would allow these other vendors, for lack of a better word, to have purchasing available within their applications. Uh, and I think that may that may be an issue here in this lawsuit. But you know, there, there's a possibility here that the way the App Store works could fundamentally change, and that would be like really wild to watch because Apple has been doing this now for ten years, and they have the most successful one on the planet, but. It, it there there I think it does raise legitimate questions about how much control they should have. You know, an example that gets cited a lot, and I think it's a fair one, is something like uh, Spotify, which if you paid for a subscription through the App Store, they just basically added the thirty percent. Right? If you paid on the web, it was cheaper. And I think if you look at those cases, you could build the argument that yeah, the thirty percent does harm consumers but it's all it's all got to be balanced against what's what they get out of it right the app store gives us a curated collection of software we can run on our devices that is safe and secure that meets some level of standards and yes apple gets that wrong sometimes but a level of standard saying that you know i can trust anything in the store and and that's the benefit of the of playing in the walled garden. And it's just interesting to see that the walls of the garden being shaken a little bit, potentially. Yeah, I, I do worry when we can potentially conflate sort of a bunch of things here. And we're not lawyers. So, you know, leave that as it, that's, as it may. That's we're, we're not antitrust lawyers, especially. But uh, Ben Thompson's piece is really good. But I do have this feeling like, you know, you're rolling up a lot of stuff. And, and the danger is that I'm not sure what, what what we would even possibly get out of this is I would love it if the result was all the things we don't like about Apple's App Store policy change, but the things we do like stay the same. That is often not what happens in cases like this. So his example of things like Amazon not being able to sell books and Comixology, which is part of Amazon not being able to sell comics and things like that, and then Apple using the iBook Store basically... Uh, to control that because they have such a monopoly on uh, on their platform that um, they can uh, they can basically beat Amazon in terms of books in terms of convenience because of the policies that they've set and how yes I think it would be much nicer if you could just uh, if they could loosen those things then again you loosen those things and every app under the sun is suddenly trying to get your credit card. 
uh, and you know what is this app and where is it going whereas if you go through apple apple controls it and apple theoretically is a is is like the 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 last the court of last resort to say wait a second these guys are scamming me i want to turn it off um and so there's that and then there's the larger antitrust issue which is not dealt with i believe at all in the supreme court arguments which is again i'm not a lawyer but i actually have a really hard time seeing how ultimately antitrust law can apply here because the point of antitrust law really is a true like a monopoly and my i think apple's strongest argument here is if you don't like the apps and the conditions under which the apps are sold to you buy an android phone because apple even in the u.s its strongest market apple doesn't even have half of the smartphone market it's not i would say by any means a monopoly and essentially every app that you would want is also available on android so um and again i'm sure that that lawyers will make the case that apple's practices actually are monopolistic in certain ways and you could apply antitrust law but i my gut feeling as i look at this and i think well this is all great and and we're all annoyed by the fact that apple exerts this control in certain ways although in other ways i would really rather not live in a world to be honest where people could freely sideload apps um, onto ios because that that way lies uh, madness and malware um but the uh you know the just is is apple a monopoly it's like apple does not apple controls 100 percent of the product that it makes and nothing else so i don't i don't see it uh, so my my you know as a non-lawyer my gut feeling is that it's great that this court case is going to proceed but it's probably not going to change anything in the long run maybe i'm wrong yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that they'll ride through this and basically be untouched. You know, I, I do think there is a little bit of an argument to be had that, it, like, I, I agree with you that Apple is controlling its own platforms. Like, I, I again, not being a lawyer, having gone to journalism school, which is a little bit different, uh, it does seem like this is is not sort of like the clear definition of a monopoly, but if they look at just consumer choice, then I think it becomes a, a little bit stickier where you can't, you can't sideload, you can't do those things like you can on other platforms. Again, that opens up like the security can of worms like you were talking about. Uh, but I just wonder how, how far they'll, they'll get into it, especially when like we look at the Supreme court and other courts, they have, they haven't always fully understood like the ramifications of technology based cases, right? Like mm-hmm. so, sometimes that's, difficult to distill in a courtroom or a legal argument for people who aren't familiar with it. And uh, that always is an interesting thing to keep an eye out uh, for as well. Just, you know, is this going to be explained in a way that is actually like kind of how it actually works and how it makes sense? So that's always something I look for in this is, you know, are the people talking about this? Do they really, uh, do they really understand you know, what they're, what they're looking at. I think we saw that famously with like Facebook and the Senate this summer, right? It's like, how does Facebook make money? It's like, Senator, we run ads, you know, uh, we can avoid that sort of thing this time around. I, I keep thinking also about some stuff like the right to repair movement. Um, you hear a lot about that from Kyle Weens at iFixit. Uh, I've done some stories on that. I think I did that, a story on that on subnet, our little news podcast that we do every day. Um, that uh, the idea that if you buy a product, you have a certain amount of rights to use it the way you see fit. And I think 
you know, I am much more inclined to agree with that argument than that than the idea that Apple is a monopoly in its own house. Because the fact is, I feel like there are rights that a company who makes a product has because they made the product. It's their product. And it starts to mm-hmm. unravel if you say, well, it's not really their product. Uh, individual features of their software are uh, different and can all be hashed out in a court of law. But I do think that there is a strong argument that says, if I buy an iPhone, it's mine, and I should have certain rights to do with it as I please, and that Apple shouldn't say, no, there's software that can run on it that we won't let you install because we say so. You're not really, you know, you you have a license agreement and you don't really own the thing you bought. And I'm, you know, I'm certainly sympathetic as a not judge and not lawyer to the argument that uh, consumers have some rights to be able to do with the products they buy as they please. And the tech industry really doesn't like that idea. They, they and I understand structurally why, because it is not, you know, Apple is kind of making a black box. They don't really want people tinkering around with it. Um, and for lots of reasons, including security reasons. But uh, some of the reasons are control reasons. And there's an argument to be made that uh, and that I am sympathetic to, that if we buy... Like, I bought a TiVo. I bought one of the first TiVos, and the hard drive died. And I went on a website where I could buy a hard drive, and I could burn a CD-ROM boot drive, and I could I could basically make a new... <laughs> I'd boot onto the CD-ROM on a PC, make a new... make Take that new hard drive and turn it into a TiVo-blessed drive and stick it in my TiVo, and I was up and running. And I was able to do that myself. And I was able to put a command line interface and an Ethernet uh, port on it and all this sort of stuff. And it's like, it was my TiVo. Like, if I break it, I bought it, so that's fine, but it was mine. And I, I have those feelings sometimes about some of these App Store arguments that I, I get what Apple's going for, but at the same time, I, I see the point that, it, you know, if I buy an iPhone, I spend $1,000 on an iPhone, it's mine. It belongs to me. I should be able to do what I want with it. It's complicated stuff. There's no way There's no <laughs> way around it. This is potentially uh, a very interesting situation so so what do you think about this other story the information uh had we'll we'll wrap up our apple headlines with this one uh, the information did a story on monday uh or was no it was last week it was last week um that was while we were out it was while we were stuffed with turkey about apple considering at least making a an apple tv stick the idea that it would make a little tiny hdmi thingy like Amazon and, and Roku do for the Apple TV, in part because they've got this new TV service coming next year and they want to make it as easy as possible for people to be able to watch their uh, TV service and subscribe to their TV service on uh, the television, on, on a big screen. Uh, so that was a... Uh, and it wasn't like they are planning it. It wasn't a Mark Gurman like they are going to release it. It was conversations have happened where they have considered it. It was the most nebulous thing possible. Possible. But uh, what do you think of of the prospect of Apple doing something like that? I think it's great. You know, I'm looking at the the Apple TV webpage right now, and the 4K Apple TV is 179 dollars. And you would think if they put it in a little stick, they could bring that cost way way down and actually and actually compete with these other these other products. You know, if all this device did was you know give you AirPlay and stream you know apple's tv thing and you know a kind of a simplified version of the apple tv i think it would do well it's an expensive ecosystem to get into right now and one that i think could expand with a 
uh, a less expensive offering. You know, you can get the old one, but it's still 150 bucks. You know, I'd love to see this thing be 99 where, hey, I just want AirPlay and a couple streaming apps, but I want it from Apple. I think they should they should play in that field, and I think they would do well in it. The, the thing that's convinced me, I, I'm not convinced about what they should do because there are so many different options, but the thing that can... It's convinced me that they need to do something different than they're doing now is just thinking about what Apple's priorities are and which is more important to Apple growing their services, especially this new video thing that they're launching that they've spent more than a billion dollars on or making money from Apple TV hardware sales like the Apple TV hardware sales will never, ever, ever in any scenario, be as important to Apple as growing its video service. So I look at it and I think, you guys just need to lay down. You need to sacrifice Apple TV. You need to get it. You don't have to sacrifice it like at the high end, but you need to get something down there in terms of price where people will, where it's a no-brainer for people to get it. Because I had a friend, um, I wrote about this in Macworld this week, uh, and we'll put a link in the show notes, but I had a friend over the weekend who was looking at their black friday sales they had on a bunch of tv seasons and series uh, on itunes and he's got an ipad he's got an iphone he has a pc so he's not like 100 percent in apple's ecosystem but he's totally got a foot in apple's ecosystem and he was going to buy i think buffy the vampire slayer the complete series for 30 bucks or whatever it was or 90 bucks I, i don't know what the price was but um but what stopped him was he wanted to watch it on his tv and like apple tv was not a part of the conversation like there's no way he was going to spend 150 dollars attaching an apple tv box to his tv and i thought this is a problem if you have if you're apple and you're trying to launch a video service and you've somebody who wants to give you money and is in your ecosystem but does not is not interested in in the thing that will let them put it on their tv that's a that's going to be a problem in 2019 when they launch this thing and if i'm an apple executive and i feel like there's got to be just a push and pull of culture here right like apple's whole culture is big margins sell hardware but like tim cook is trying to turn apple into a company that also is very focused on services revenue Mm -hmm. and this is one of those cases where it's a super easy math problem which is the Apple TV hardware revenue just doesn't matter. It is a rounding error compared to what they're hoped they're hoping to do with with services, especially the video service. So this, you know, it, it, there's obviously a clash of cultures going on. But if I'm Tim Cook, and I very rarely say like, what would I do if I was an Apple executive? But if I'm Tim Cook, I look at this and I look at the Apple TV people, and I'm like, yeah, forget it. Like, no, we're not gonna we're not gonna hold the line at 150 bucks for a for a box. That's ridiculous. I need I'm I spent a billion dollars on on TV shows. People, we got some we got to get this thing out there. So, you know, is it a stick the right choice? Maybe like if it, if it's a cheaper, simpler product with fewer features, um, I think you know, great. Although I I almost am, don't believe Apple has it in them to make like a cut down. Apple TV. They could like the TV app has access. It has like a mini app store inside it. The TV app does where you can get other TV apps. They could make like a Apple TV mini that is only kind of the TV app and other video apps. They could totally do that if they wanted to. Um, 
the idea of Apple TV 4K as a as a gaming platform never really went anywhere. So maybe there's a larger recalibration that can be done here. But they got to get under a hundred dollars. I don't think they have to get to fifty like Amazon. But boy, like they they can't launch this video service and have no affordable way to get it on your screens when the competition is selling these things for 40 bucks yeah i mean the the apple tv should be a just a a conduit for the service right not a not a destination unto itself and that to your point that'd be a big change for apple but i think it's the right change it can be like i mean you can't make a box like this and have it not do netflix right and not you can't so the, of course it'll be able to do that. But how do you launch your video service that doesn't work on whatever random box people have or TV they've got? Right? It's not like Netflix where it's on every refrigerator and microwave and TV in the world. But you just you have to give people a way to. Do it. I also think, uh, and this is uh, another kind of wacky theory, but I also think that they need to um, consider like a deal where. When you know to mitigate the high price, even if it's a hundred bucks, to say you'll get six months free, something like that of the video service if you get our box to try and make it because I I think they need to to move boxes. They need to get their ecosystem hooked up to people's TVs. That if I if I was working on this at Apple in 2019 to be like we got to get as many people seeing our ecosystem on their TV set as possible. And like some people will watch on their iPads and that's great. But a lot of people have like a pretty 4K HDR TV and they want to watch their TV shows on it and you should make it easy for them. And they have they haven't totally Uh, we've got more to talk about. We got to talk about Amazon and we got to talk about Google. And then, of course, we've also got to talk about uh, IDG and Pat McGovern with our special guests later in the show. But first, let me tell you about one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Pingdom. Pingdom helps keep your sites and the sites you love online. They monitor your site so you don't have to. They give you real-time feedback so you know exactly what's going on at all times. The internet is great, but it's full of computers and they will betray you and stuff breaks all the time. Uh, Stephen, does the, <laughs> Relay's website stays up 100% of the time though, right? Totally, I, totally. I wish it did, but when it does go down, Pingdom tells me when I have a problem. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Because Pingdom detects 13 million outages every month, 400,000 outages every day. Fortunately, the Relay website does not go down every day, uh, but it does sometimes go down. And there's that moment of like, uh-oh, can I post anything? No, I can't. Stephen, help! Right? But Stephen's already on it because he, he... Actually, that is a true thing that you... Every time I say, oh, is the site down? You're like, yeah, I already am on it because you've been <laughs> warned. You've, you've already been warned. And that's the way to do it. You don't want to be, uh, be told by one of your collaborators or customers that uh, your thing is broken. You should already know. You should be ahead of it. And Pingdom will let you do that. They can cu- you can customize how you're alerted depending on how severe the outage is, who could be alerted. They'll track and analyze load times so you can see if something is slowing down your site without actually technically breaking it. I think that's really clever. And it's looking at different parts of your site. So if your site's up, but your shopping cart is down, they can let you know that too. It's easy to get started. Give them a URL. They'll monitor it. They take care of all of it. It's super easy. Go to pingdom.com slash RelayFM right now for a 14-day free trial. No credit card required. And when you sign up, use the code download at checkout to get a huge 30% off your first invoice. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting this show and all of RelayFM. So Stephen, our next topic is Amazon. 
And um, the big story here, and the one that I really wanted to talk about, there was a lot of Amazon stuff, a lot of Amazon Web Services stuff this week, including their um, race car that Amazon Web Services, their, their machine learning race car that they uh, yes. announced, which I'm not, <laughs> awesome. I'm not kidding. That is a thing that happened. Uh, but uh, the one I wanted to uh, talk about with you for a minute is this the fact that they're designing their own ARM processors. So Amazon, uh, we've heard about like Amazon and Facebook and a lot of companies, Google, design their own servers because they know exactly what they want. But this is a whole new level where, like Apple has done with their A-series processors on all of their iOS devices and and watchOS and and tvOS too, um, Amazon has just decided we're going to build not only our own servers, but we're going to build our own processors. So this is a huge move because it's a move away from kind of the Intel class of processors toward ARM processors in the cloud, and in particular, a a, a chip that uh, that Amazon is just going to make itself. You know, I think there are a couple angles into this. One, uh, just what is happening with Intel and AMD, right? Yeah. They they continue to struggle in this performance and uh, p- versus power continuum. They're basically stuck at ten nanometers, at least Intel is. Uh, and that's you know we we talk a lot about that on the consumer side of things, right? Like Apple will go ARM at some point. Uh, Google stuff, you know, Chrome OS runs both on ARM and Intel. Uh, Windows 64, I believe, got got ARM support, kind of more robust ARM support this week. It is happening in the consumer market. But when you look at this, I think a lot of the same conversations we have about why an ARM MacBook Air would make sense, all those things make sense on the server side as well. You're right, you can run them cooler, which means you can have more of them in a smaller space. They require less power. And because uh, Amazon is doing themselves, because they actually bought a... Um, a uh, custom silicone company back in 2015 not like apple did exactly uh, years and years ago they could do exactly what they need to so if they don't need big honking gpus on these things they just don't build it in you know if they need really fast single core performance for some types of workloads but like vastly multi-core on others they can just build systems that do that and they're not dependent on other people and i think it's only going to help aws continue to take a lead in their in their environment. But uh, if I were Intel, (laughs) I would be really nervous about this because now you have it on both sides, both the consumer and sort of the cloud server infrastructure side, you're going to get squeezed. Right. Because Intel dominates the server chip market like they dominate the personal computer chip market. And they are squeezed on the mobile side for sure we all know about that but now they are going to get squeezed on the on the server side and it does make you think what we're watching now i i for a long time have thought well you know intel they've got a lot of skills they've had some trouble but they they will they will uh, kind of get it together and i thought that although i think that less and less over time i keep th- i keep thinking that this announcement is the one that made me think maybe we're just witnessing Intel die now. Maybe we're literally mm-hmm. just witnessing a, uh, and not like Intel will go away because they make other stuff and they could make, you know, they, they, they've got a lot of fight in them, but this feels now like 
remember that 10-year transition period where the Intel standard processors all disappeared and were yeah. replaced by, by you know, lower-powered, more efficient ARM processors? That seems to be the world that we're headed toward now, is we're in that transition. And, and, and you know, people who follow Apple keep expecting that Apple's going to take their laptops that run Intel processors and put their own ARM chips in there as well. Microsoft, uh, la- I want to say late last year, it might have been early this year, announced that they're going... Uh, back to ARM for Windows, which they tried a while ago with Windows, what, RT, um, I think is what it was, that their yep. ARM, their early, first ARM for their first Surface. But there's now a new, you know, a new Windows initiative for Windows 10 on 64-bit ARM. Um, and, you know, and there are a bunch of laptops from HP and, and Lenovo and other places that use those. And, you know, the first generation, the reviews weren't fantastic. They are slow, but they also offer like 20 hour battery life, right? Like things that <laughs> yeah. do not exist. And this is what people on the Apple side have keep, kept anticipating for a, an ARM Mac laptop would be that it'll be not necessarily fast, but uh, also probably offer double battery life potentially. Um, that that it just it feels like a real milestone where Amazon says yeah we're doing it too everybody's doing it and the thing about ARM is if you're an ARM licensee um, ARM is a processor standard but it's it's uh, a licensed processor standard and you can design your own chips and in a way that the you know Intel is not Intel is like a retail you can work with Intel but it's a retail chip operation you buy Intel's designs and put them in your systems and you know the Amazon and Apple are both like no we're not going to do that we're going to just build our own chips we're going to you know they don't build them they have a uh, what is a taiwan semiconductor there was a story this week about how they're the the uh, unsung hero they're like the little uh, paddling duck duck legs under the water that you don't see that are powering all of this because they're killing it on fabbing these chips but it frees up amazon and apple and companies like that to uh, just break away from intel and make like you said purpose-built chips that if you don't want a certain feature you just throw it away you just don't need it and and so it's less wasteful more efficient it's it just it feels like a sea change yeah, it does. Uh, I think you're probably right that we are in this transition, and I think a lot of people are are noticing that. Oh, this is not uh, the same situation we were in a decade ago. Like when Apple switched to Intel, you know, they said all these bad things about the Power PC. Well, now all that stuff is true about the Intel chips. They're slow, uh, or they're, they're slow to be updated. I should say uh, they're they're hot. They're energy inefficient compared to other options now. And uh, I fully expect that we will continue to see this slide and we may – Intel may end up being – you know they, they are doing some stuff with cellular modems because there's, the there's the whole Apple versus Qualcomm deal. Uh, Intel I think may become the sort of like more specific manufacturer that has to play in a world that it no longer controls. And that is – I mean if you had told somebody 10 years ago that would be the case, they would think that you were bananas. But this is the world that we're in now. Yeah, Intel was the unstoppable force. And it's just anybody who's lived for any amount of time knows that 
uh, anything, any, there's no such thing as an unstoppable force. Or what's the classic line? The, uh, the graveyards are filled with irreplaceable men. Like the, it, ha- <laughs> like life goes on and you got to adapt And Microsoft. It's an interesting side note. Like Microsoft is basically the same uh, corporate valuation right now as Apple because Apple stock prices have dropped a bit. And that is the story of Satya Nadella totally reinventing it. And, and, and that's Apple and Google and most of these tech companies now realize that they have to keep reinventing themselves themselves because otherwise they're gonna they, they will just fade away ibm reinvented itself microsoft has completely reinvented itself it's essentially the number two player in cloud behind amazon but it's a strong competitor to amazon in cloud stuff and and getting stronger i would argue so you know it, it, there there are life cycles but intel like they seemed like they had cracked the code nobody was close to what they could do and they made a, a bad bet on mobile and mobile accelerated so quickly that there was so much focus and money going into being good on mobile and Intel has sort of never recovered from that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder what the future of, of Intel is going to be. Sometimes I wonder that about, about Apple talking to Intel. Like at what point do you, if you're Apple, do you have leverage to say, well, <laughs> you know, make, make us what we want. But there were, and there was conversations at some point that like Apple, had gone to Intel, I think I remember this story, and and talked to them about doing custom chips for them. And, like, Intel doesn't do that, <laughs> right? And yet, like, at some point, they, they they change their policy. I'm like, well, maybe we'll do some custom chips. It's just the world we live in it keeps changing. Um, we got more to talk about. I've got the story you might have missed coming up in a moment. And we've got our interview that I did with uh, Patrick McGovern and Glenn Rifkin. And that is coming up. But first, let me tell you about our next sponsor. This episode of Downloads brought to you by Simple Contacts. You probably have a bunch of things that take time. You got work. You got side projects. You maybe play some games, read some books, whatever. Um, what you don't want to do is spend that time uh, getting new contact lenses, making uh, uh, an office visit uh, t- just to get the a refill on your contact lenses. It's super annoying. You can use Simple Contacts to do that. Simple Contacts lets you renew your existing prescription and reorder your contacts all online. They've got a great app on iPhone. Uh, you can do it from anywhere in just minutes. It's a self-guided vision test. It takes you five minutes. So much simpler than going, taking time off, going to the doctor's office just to get more of your contact lenses. A licensed doctor reviews every test. You can skip that office visit, but not the care. You do need uh, to have your periodic full eye health exam. This is not a replacement for that. Uh, what Simple Contacts does is check that your current prescription still helps you see 2020, and then they renew your lenses based on that prescription. They're not writing completely new prescriptions or examining your eye health. Steven, you went through this. Did it, did it work well for you? Yeah, it was great. So if you put your contacts in and the, the app kind of tells you what to do, so how far back to stand, you do the vision test. And like you said, they're just making sure you, that your prescription is, is still what it's supposed to be. And I wear sort of an unusual brand of contact lenses and they had them. So I was able to order them right on my phone and then they, uh, they showed up and right on the door, I didn't have to go anywhere. And, uh, when I had run through them all, they said, Hey, you know, it may be time to refill. It was all really great. It was just the convenience you expect from like modern, 
uh, purchasing right. uh, in a field that I had never experienced that in before. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, it does. It does definitely feel like that. Yeah, they had my weird contact lens brand too, which is pretty cool. So their vision test costs twenty dollars. The prices are unbeatable on the lenses themselves. Standard shipping is free, and we've got a special offer for download listeners. Join the thousands of people who have rated Simple Contacts five stars in the App Store and get twenty dollars off your contacts. Just go to simplecontacts.com slash download twenty. Use the code download twenty at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash download 20 and use the code download 20 and you'll get $20 off. Thank you to Simple Contacts for supporting download and all of Relay FM. All right, now it's time for the story you might have missed. This is something that may have flown under your radar, but it's worth mentioning Google's Project Fi is now legit. Uh, Project Fi is an MVNO. It's a virtual cellular carrier. Google has been trying it out for a while. The name gives it away, right? Project Fi. It's like, well, I don't know. It's this crazy thing we're trying where uh, we're going to do our own carrier and we'll see what happens. And it sounds like they have finally settled. They are changing it to call it Google Fi. So it's no longer a wacky project, but it's an actual thing. And they are officially supporting a lot more phones, the majority of Android devices, and the iPhone. Yes, that's true. You could, I believe, use an iPhone uh, before, but it was not something that was supported or really approved by Google. And now you can. Now you'll lose some features on your iPhone if you use this. But uh, I know people who swear by by Project Fi and have used it on their Android phone for a long time. Um, It's got a lot of features that are nice, including um, extra security and network reliability and VPNs. And I think most importantly, um, no roaming fees in more than 170 destinations worldwide. Um, And, you know, LTE speeds, unlimited calls and texts. There's a lot of good features of of project fi that now go into google fi and are available for way more people mm-hmm. yeah my brother-in-law's on it he is on a nexus 6p i think and seems to have had really good luck with it so i'm glad it's expanding um you know i will just say though that putting google in the product name isn't a, a, a sure thing because google reader Okay. Yeah, it's true. And I get to complain about Google Reader on a podcast. Well, Project Reader. uh, Yeah, it's it's, uh, a a sign that they take the project name off of it, that they actually think that there's a real real product here that's going to keep around for the long haul. And if you're somebody who hates the surprise at the end of the day uh, or the end of the month of getting a bill, they've got this bill protection program. So they basically set a cap and say, we will never charge you more than this in a given month, which is pretty cool. You can get a data-only SIM if you want. So no additional money per month beyond the data that you put on it. Uh, there are a lot of kind of good deals because Google wants this to be like its idealized carrier. And even though it is um, it is an MVNO, which means it's using T-Mobile, Sprint, and US Cellular towers for its backbone. So if you're in an area that doesn't get that coverage, you're going to be sad. But you only deal with Google, which is uh, clever. So yes, if you, you may have missed it, but Project Fi, if you're not on a phone that uh, supported it, it's legit now. It's not a project anymore, and it might work on your phone. So you could check it out. All right, we are going to go to our uh, special, this is very different, interview segment where I'm going to talk to two guests about a lot of stuff from my history at IDG about an incredibly interesting guy. So Pat McGovern, the founder of IDG, uh, is uh, probably one of the most influential people in the tech world who you've 
probably never heard of. And there's a reason for that. And we get into it. So Patrick McGovern is Pat McGovern's son. And Glenn Rifkin is the author of the brand new book that was a project that that Pat and Glenn worked on together called Future Forward Leadership Lessons from Patrick McGovern, the visionary who circled the globe and built a technology media empire. We had a really fun conversation, and I would like to play it for you right now. So the first question I want to ask both of you is about Future Forward. Um, what what was the origin of this book project? How did that, before we dive in and talk about Pat McGovern and uh, all of the interesting stuff that he did, I wanted to start with the, the book and, and, and what, how did it come about that, uh, that this book got created? Well, I think Patrick and I both have uh, stories to tell to answer that question. So, Patrick, why don't you go first? Well, I think it was primarily because, uh, you know, when when people think of, uh, uh, you know, technologists, people like Bill Gates or Mark Benioff or Elon Musk, um, it, it, they're household names. But when you think of Pat McGovern, you know, people really didn't know uh, who he was, but yet they knew the brands that he made, Macworld, PC World, Computer World, InfoWorld. And so I really wanted to get the story out of who he was and uh, what he was about. And then uh, he also, uh, and Jason, I know you know this as well, you know, built a very unique culture in his company uh, over a course of 50 years. For sure. And uh, and so I wanted to tell that story. And I was very fortunate uh, to find Glenn, who worked at Computer World for eight years and also, also uh, ghost wrote for my father for a number of years, too, and really knew both the culture and his story. Uh, so I was, it was great to get him on board, and we spent about uh, the last 18 months to two years putting this book together. Yeah, and I would just add to that that, um, as Patrick just said, I, I worked at the company in the 1980s. I got to know Pat McGovern pretty well, uh, worked with him directly for a couple of years. And all along the way, when I would see him or when I would do an interview with him for a newspaper article or magazine, I would always end our conversation by saying, so, Pat, when are we going to do your book? And he would often laugh and just say, uh, well, I'm not ready yet. There's just too much more to do. So it was a project that kind of sat in the back of my mind for a long time. So when Patrick approached me a couple of years ago, with this uh, concept, it was uh, sort of serendipity. It was almost meant to be. So I was very excited about being able to do this. So now something Patrick mentioned there that I, I want to get into uh, is this idea. So IDG, I worked for IDG for a long time. And I would tell people I worked for IDG. And more often than not, unless they were an inside tech, usually tech media person, they would say, I've never heard of that. I don't know what that is. It's just some letters. What does it mean? And then I would say, well, we do. And I would start listing off the brands. And they'd be like, oh, yeah, right. They would some or all or, you know, some collection of them would hit. And I think this goes back to one of the interesting business decisions and philosophies that Pat McGovern made, which is the idea of uh, IDG's decentralization and having the brands. It does have the net effect, too, of people not necessarily knowing who he was and the the scale of the company that he ended up building. But uh, I wonder if you guys could talk a little bit about uh, about that decentralization centralized philosophy, because it certainly is a very different view of building a, a business and a media business than I think we see today. Well, I think that um, clearly from early on in the company, uh, Pat had some concepts about how he was going to build this business. And at first, he was an entrepreneur, um, like many others, who had this notion that he had to make every decision. 
mm-hmm. and there was his baby, and unless he was involved, uh, it was like a, it was going to go down the tubes. So he was um, piling stuff up on his desk as it was growing, trying to stay ahead of that. And he liked to travel. That was a you know big part of his his theme was to make this international. So he would go away for you know a week, ten days, two weeks, and when he'd come back, his desk would be piled high with with, uh, you know, work for him to do to try to keep up. And he realized one day that there had been many, many companies built uh, very successfully without the input of Pat McGovern. And that kind of put the light bulb on in his head that said, the best way to do this is to decentralize, to say that every tub is going to stay on its own bottom. And he would build this um, by allowing local markets to basically take care of them, themselves, which was sort of brilliant and sort of obvious at the same time, because especially in technology, what people needed in Asia or Scandinavia or Europe was going to be somewhat similar to what they needed in the U.S., but there would also be local issues that they they alone would know uh, how best to address and wouldn't need dictates from some headquarters thousands of miles away. So that was that was definitely his thinking, and it you know came from firsthand experience. I get why that is a good uh, smart business decision. I mean, you 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 said it. The philosophy here is like the people in the individual countries or in the, in the U.S. in individual markets know their markets so well, and yet uh, you know a lot of businesses. I think maybe there's some ego involved. We want we want control over everything, and we also want everything to be just like we say, no matter where the headquarters is. And that is something that seemed absent in IDG, that it really was sort of if somebody at PC Advisor in the UK or at Macworld in Sweden had a great idea, uh, that was seen as a kind of uh, uh, proof that this idea of letting everybody in these different areas do their own thing was the right approach. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, overall, the, the company, uh, while it was running, it had 300 publications and 460 websites. Uh, addressing you know 280 million people uh, a month, you know a huge set of brands. Uh, but he also had this concept of a let's try it attitude. So each of these different business units, and there were you know hundreds of them, um, would create different um, publications for that local market. And I, I kind of think of it as a very Darwinian perspective, where the people there on the ground uh, know know best, um, and they're able to try things at fairly low cost to see if it sticks or not. And because of that, you you end up with a lot of uh, variations and a lot of things targeted to that particular local market. Um, and, um, you know, one great example of the let's try it attitude is the whole concept of the, the dummies books, which is not uh, something, you know, when you come up with a title, a DOS for dummies, uh, it's not something where you're like, well, that that's an obvious thing. Um, but someone decided to try it within your organization. And while typically the normal rule for um, for names is you don't insult your your customer. <laughs> right. um, in this case, they said, "Okay, let's give it a try," and that that really launched a whole series of uh, you know dummy books that uh, was a huge uh, turned into a huge international brand. By you know, but that was because someone was trying something in a in a business unit. You know, decentralization became kind of a uh, a well known um, concept. A lot of big companies decided to embrace it. But when Pat did it back in the '60s, it was um, you know unusual and and risky and and uh, the classic Pat, because uh, risk never bothered him. He just decided this was the best way to go. And, you know, when you're talking about 
opening offices in markets around the world from Asia, you know, into the uh, behind the Iron Curtain way back then. Um, there's a lot of risk involved that you may not get the right person, that you may not set it up correctly to, to take the best advantage of the marketplace. But that never that never slowed him down. He knew there would be failures along the way, and there were a few. But the wins just far outnumbered the, the losses. And, you know, it just reinforced that this was a great way to do it. I will take you back to my interview with Patrick and Glenn in just a moment. But first, let me tell you about our last sponsor for this episode of Download. It's Kane 11, a new sponsor, the company that makes ridiculously comfortable socks in your size. Here's the thing. The socks you're wearing now are probably one size fits all, but we don't all have the same size feet. So the people at Kane 11 thought we wear socks every day. They deserve to be Innovated, disrupted, I don't even know. So, Kane 11's men's merino wool socks are precisely fit. You can choose from 11 different U.S. shoe sizes, size 7 through 17. They're made in the USA. They're engineered for a precise fit, and they are very high quality. They will hold up through wash after wash. I have a few pairs that I've received. I was a little bit confused because I'm size 11. So, I thought, is there a whole other company? Is there a Kane 12? Is there a Kane 15? Is there a Kane 8? No. It's all called Kane 11. But if you're size 7 or size 13, you also can get socks. It's just I'm size 11. So hooray for me, I guess. Super Good job. Com- yeah. I, I Thank you. Uh, they're comfortable. They fit perfectly. Uh, they're stripy. I love them. I've I have in my last few years of 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 my life I've really switched over from the white generic sweat socks that I wore my entire life to realizing there's more to life than than plain socks. That's right. And that uh, I like the stripy socks. I like nice stripy yeah. socks. I want my feet to be happy and they are happy. Yeah, I've got uh, I also got a couple of pair and I am like their target audience where I'm like a size 10 most sort of one size fits all socks were like too big for me. Right. So I, I try to like go down a size and then if they went through the dryer and shrank, then they were over. Yep. So like th- this really has solved a problem I've had in my wardrobe as long as I can remember. So I've got, I think I've got three or four pair now and I'm just like, I'm actually wearing them now. I just like rotate through them. And, uh, I've got to say like they're, they, they fit great. They're super comfortable and uh, I've been really happy with them. Uh, we've had some pretty cold weather here, and they're, they're nice and warm. Um, I've been uh, I've been a big fan so far. So the company is Kane Eleven. You're a size ten. Do your socks say ten on them, or do they say eleven? They, they say they ten. Say 10. Okay, because I assumed because there's a little thing and it says what the size is, and I assumed that was my size. But when I realized the company was also called Kane Eleven, I thought, well, maybe it's just branding. But no, that's it's going to reinforce that it, these these socks are for you. Yep, it's great, and they come with a guarantee. If for any reason you don't love your socks, send them back for an exchange or a return, no questions asked. They are also a perfect gift. Dare I say, a stocking stuffer. You could play Ooh. socks within an oversized sock, a, a, a sock. So, so a socking, a socking stuffer. Really, um, I like the way you think. I like that a lot. To get your own Kane Eleven socks and precisely your size, your size, go to Kane11.com/slash/download. Use the promo code download. You'll get twenty percent off your order. Kane11.com. K-A-N-E one one dot com. Remember the K slash download promo code download 20% off your first order. Thank you to Kane 11 for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Now back to my conversation with Patrick and Glenn. 
The I and IDG is International Data Group, and definitely one of the things that I discovered when I started working at IDG is the scope. I had suddenly had colleagues in all of these different markets, and as somebody who worked at Macworld, I discovered that my words were being uh, published in not just in sort of the UK and Australia, but they were being translated into Spanish and and uh, Swedish and Turkish, and that was all part of the flavor of, of IDG, and as I, I stayed there for a while, I ended up getting to travel a little bit to different parts of the, the world, which was great. One of the places where uh, IDG and, and Pat McGovern really showed so much foresight is in China. He is, I think, generally credited with being one of the very first uh, Western um, investors in China. How did that, how did that happen? Well, in 1978, Pat was flying back from Tokyo to, to Moscow for a, a trade show. And he managed to get off the plane in Beijing, where it was making a stopover, at a time when the U.S. didn't even have diplomatic relations with China. He was not allowed <laughs> off this plane, but he, he got off anyway. And, you know, at the airport, such as it was in 1978 in Beijing, he talked his, his way in without speaking Chinese, and he convinced them that he was it was okay for him to go. And so he got a day pass somehow to wander around the streets of Beijing. And it was, it, you can only imagine the sight that must have been. He, this was still, Ma, you know, a Maoist country mm-hmm. with people wearing drab, you know, green and, and gray clothing and um, wandering the streets of Beijing at that time. And here's this American businessman in his dark suit. And he's, you know, 6'3", a huge guy. can only imagine the looks on their faces to see him because there weren't many Americans there. But for Pat, it was a chance to see what this potential market might be. He looked into bookstores. He looked around the city to see this burgeoning population that was just starving for information. And he got the sense right there, I've got to be here. I've got to set something up here. So two years later, he went back. And within a couple of months, they had China Computer World up and running. It was really a, a stunning move. But uh, again, it was this guy who just didn't mind risk, didn't mind taking that extra step. And uh, he, he met the right people, made a deal with one of the ministries to do a joint venture. And lo and behold, he built China Computer World, which went on to become one of the top business publications in all of China. And a huge amount of success on the, on the ultimately on the investment side, too, being a, involved in venture capital, which is, again, one of those things that people don't think about uh, IDG. But there was a venture side. There was also, of course, the research side, IDC. There, there you know, the, my understanding is that um, you know a huge part of the growth that IDG saw in later years was because essentially they had a presence in China thanks to Pat getting off the plane and yeah. uh, everything that followed, and then that led to also um, in early investment opportunities in, in the Chinese economy, which we think of it now and it seems like a no brainer, but in the eighties it did not seem like that at all. That's right. And I think, you know, the way he's able to, he was able to see these opportunities was actually being there on the ground, um, where a lot of people, you know, make conference calls and, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, just, uh, talk to people remotely. Uh, he was always there on the ground. Um, in China alone, he took 130 trips there over his lifetime. And I calculated one day that 130 trips, you figure a round trip, it's, you know, 18 hours or so each way. Uh, that's like three quarters of a year just at uh, 35,000 feet, flying back and forth to the country. Uh, but the the opportunity there is being there on the ground, talking to the people, seeing the uh, 
the economic growth and the opportunities there, I think, gave him uh, an amazing opportunity to create publications there like Computer World in 1980, but also a lot of the venture capital that uh, really took off in the late 90s and, and actually still doing quite well. When the venture capital business started to get going in India, Pat, of, of course, wanted to be early into the game. He identified this person. He did some, some research and found uh, a, a guy named um, Sudhir Sethi, who is, um, was well-known in, in a very new venture capital market there. Um, did some research, talked to some of his friends, some of the people who knew him, and he called him up kind of out of the blue. And, and Seti at that point was trying to set up his first fund. And he, here he gets this American businessman on the phone who said to him, so what do you have in mind for your first, for your first fund? And said, he said, well, we'd like to raise a hundred million. And Pat replied, um, I think you should really try to raise 150 million. And said, he laughed. He said, well, of course we would like to do that, but you know, we don't have, we just don't have the backer to do that. And, and Pat said, uh, well, you do now because I'll, I'll, I'll fund the entire 150 million. And said, he told me the story. He said, he, w- he put the phone down and looked at his wife and started to tell her what was going on. And she said, you stupid man, pick the phone back up right away. And so he did. And the rest is history. Now, the IDG Ventures India is one of the biggest venture capital firms in India, which is a big growing market for venture. And, you know, Pat, that's the way Pat operated. Yeah, and that was, uh, you know, it was 2005, 2006. And, you know, the very one of the very first companies that uh, – IDG India invested in was Flipkart, which is kind of an Amazon, eBay related thing. Uh, you know that just got bought out by uh, Walmart for twenty billion dollars. So uh, it, it really helps to be first mover in, in new areas. I want to mention. So we're talking about people and investing in people and 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 letting people try things. I mean, there's a lot of this stuff is connected. This is not a disconnected list of of ideals. They are all I feel like really connected here. And one of the ones it's a it's, I'm going to do a Pat story now, uh, which is I want I want to uh, talk to you both about the Christmas cards because this is something that people cannot believe is a thing, and it was totally a thing. Which is if you worked at IDG uh, as I did in 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 the United States. Uh, I discovered when I started there that um, the man who started and owned the company would be coming by a little bit before Christmas to talk to us individually and personally hand us our Christmas bonus and shake our hands. And I was like, that is not no, that's not possible. And the fact is, that was absolutely true. And it happened, um, you know, basically every year. I think I think uh, he had some health issues in the last couple of years where there was a year that we missed him. But uh, then he was back the next year. And that was the last year that he visited us. But um, it was, it, you know, how how can it be? Uh, and what what does it say about his priorities that 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 was something that he felt he he wanted to do? He wanted to see the people who work for IDG and shake their hand and talk to them. Well, it's not a coincidence that I actually start the book with my own recollection of that moment. Um, I started in 1983 and it was early in the year. By the end of the year, you know, he was a legend already in my mind. And that very the way you described it is perfect. This this concept that the chairman and the founder is going to come into my office and he's going to come up to my desk personally. You're kidding. But 
that, that's exactly what happened. And I remember the, the day so vividly because we're all sitting in our cubicles. Now, I'm in Framingham, Massachusetts, where Computer World was headquartered. And, you know, we were like little kids waiting for Santa Claus to show up. And when the word got out that he was actually in the building, you know, all work stopped. <laughs> people started. Some people were so nervous. It's, it's a, a totally true. Told, totally uh, true. Some, the word getting out that he was in the building is a thing that building. absolutely happened. Uh, yeah, Elvis is in the building. <laughs> this one woman recently told me a story. She was so nervous. She went to the ladies room and hid until he left because she couldn't she couldn't imagine meeting him in person. But somebody like me, it was just unbelievable. He came to my desk. He shook my hand. Uh, he, he mentioned uh, an article that I had written and thanked me for it, thanked me for my contribution to the company, um, asked me about my family, and then handed me this Christmas card with, and, and you know wished me the best holiday season. And when he walked away, I looked in the, in the card, and there was uh, the first year, in fact, it was a check, and it was a, a bonus for the amount of a month's salary. And needless to say, that will get your attention and it will it will sink in forever. And when it when he comes back year after year and he always remembers your name, always remembers something about you because he had a photographic memory. It, you know, it's unheard of. And I never heard I'm, I've been a business writer for four decades and I've never heard of another CEO who did this. So it, it, it's a pretty amazing story. And it is the story that almost every IDG veteran will tell you. And I think I just would add that this isn't, you know, one small office with 20 people. This is 2000 people that for he would individually. Well, it, it all depends on the on the year and whatnot. But um <laughs> Uh, you know, he would he would handwrite the notes. He would uh, you know walk them over. He, as Glenn mentioned, had a photographic memory, and he would go mostly East Coast, West Coast, U.S. But it was uh, typically a, a one month journey uh, uh -huh. every December to do this to every single individual, and the way it touched people to have, as Glenn mentioned, somebody coming up and and not only handing a check. Oftentimes, I've heard it was cash, and I, I don't know if it's true of folklore of of armored, uh, you know, Brinks truck outside with the with the cash because you have you know five hundred people in a location, each getting a month's salary or whatever. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but uh, but as Glenn mentioned, as we've been doing the the you know the book tour and the research for the book, the 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 story of the Christmas bonus and and what it meant to people uh, and just the the really. The marathon he did every single year um, with all these people and the photographic memory of being able to rem you know, remember everything about somebody and and oh you know Jason you wrote that great you know piece piece about the new iPhone or something he would be able to pull that out and um, and it really. Uh, uh, really affected people in a very strong way. Yeah, I mean, it's just something that people reacted that way to it because that because I I know somebody from the outside could view this and say like, oh, well, that sounds kind of hokey or whatever. It's like, but if you talk to anybody who went through it, it is a treasured memory and it does say something that somebody very, like outside of your general chain of command where you might be grousing about your boss or what the CEO of your company is doing, but the big boss comes to show his appreciation for you as a worker. It's meaningful. It really is. Even the most kind of jaded cynical journalists i will tell you found it meaningful that he was that he made the effort sometimes it was not meaningful in the specifics even it was that he was making that effort to talk to them the the, the bottom line here the takeaway uh, certainly from writing this book is that you can actually run a really big and successful organization with kindness and compassion rather than you know the the kind of greed is good uh, let's chop off the bottom 10% who are not performing kind of attitude that was so pervasive, certainly in the 1980s and 90s. 
Um, this guy just had a whole different view of how you could run a business. And um, when I was there, the big rival was Ziff Davis. Um, sure. I don't know if that continued, Jason, when you were there, but the you know they were known they were known as the the cutthroat organization. They and they would recruit us from from IDG, and they would offer a little bit more money, and a, and a bunch of people would go. And they would hate it because it was just this, you know, backstabbing, you'd have to work crazy hours kind of thing. And they left behind this familial organization run by Uncle Pat, as we all call them. <laughs> and they couldn't wait to get back because they said, this is not really the way to work. This, the <laughs> IDG has the, has the real good formula for how you run an organization. You t- you, so you mentioned the lessons in the book and the fact that, that being a, a decent human being and caring about your people uh, is not uh, something that precludes you from also being a successful business person. Um, you know, this book is a combination of being a a bunch of great stories about Pat McGovern, but it's also not a biography of Pat McGovern. It is about sort of his business practices and his ideals. So when when somebody is thinking about reading this book, um, coming from the perspective of not having some kind of computer industry stories, but in terms of learning how to be better at what they do, you know, what do you think? Uh, what you know, what can people get out of Future Forward? Well, we you know certainly we hope that they'll get the sense of the breadth and scope of the leadership and visionary view that, that Pat McGovern had and, and, and was able to you know, turn into real hands-on uh, management and leadership over nearly a half century. Uh, think about that, 50 years of running this company. So the, the takeaways, in fact, each chapter has some takeaways listed at the end. But you know, the, the lessons that um, he taught, uh, I distilled down into 10. But truthfully, there's many more than that. It's just it, it felt like these were the ones that you could really, um, you know, get your hands around. And there were so many great stories to illustrate each one of those um, fr- from defining the mission. You know, it's something that seems obvious, but so many companies you see, they lose their way because they they don't stick to the mission. Pat was very clear about what the mission was, and he hired the warriors. He found the warriors who would would, you know, uh, play out that mission for him. Uh, he was not inflexible and rigid. There were t- the Four Dummies books, which Patrick mentioned before, was a good example that wasn't totally on mission, but he could see how it would support the idea of information technology, um, uh, you know, for the masses, and and he went with it. And his ability to be flexible in that way illustrated the "let's try it" attitude. There's just so many ways that you could look at it. The decentralization concept, the idea that he saw himself um, as the chief encouragement officer, the CEO. Yeah, I would say that um, you know when we originally Glenn and I were going to do this book, it was going to be a, a straight bio. You know, he was born here, he started a company, uh, and whatnot. But as we uh, we flew together to to China and into India, uh, into Europe, and and interview people on the East Coast and West Coast of the U.S. Um, we kept on hearing the same stories, whether it was a Christmas bonus or, or this let's try it attitude. And, and it came, became very clear that, um, you know, this is, this is something different. And, and my wife, who's in HR said, you know, I don't want to know who he was. I want to know how he did it. Um, and so we, we pivoted on the, the, really the concept of the book. And I'm really glad we did. Um, during this, uh, as we, we've traveled around promoting the book, Glenn and I were in Boston about a month ago uh, at an IDG event, which was really promoting the book. 
And I was speaking and I asked the crowd of about 250 people. I said, you know, uh, IDG has a very unique culture. How many of the people, uh, you there in the audience, how many of you have been at the company for more than 20 years? Uh, and more than 50% of the, the hands went up. Uh, and that's really something. Uh, you know, I live in the Bay Area um, where there's a lot of four-year vesting going on. And, uh, you know, people vest and then they find their next start, uh, startup to, to go after. Uh, and he, this is a, you know, a company culture that he built over 50 years where people want to be there. They, they, they want to uh, grow and, and uh, you know, big, build unique uh, publications and, and find new, new opportunities. But there's something um, more than, than just a corporate thing. There's, there's sort of an inner soul that he built, and, uh, and we wanted to tell that story. So before we go, I have one last question for Patrick, which is, uh, we, I mentioned earlier IDG being sold uh, as a part of that because in the end, the money was meant to go to the foundation, the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. Can uh, you tell me a little bit about what the McGovern Foundation is doing? Absolutely. Uh, well, we're, uh, it's a new foundation. The, the company got sold and my father, in his will, said that he wanted 100%, 100% of the... Um, the funds to go to a new foundation. Um, and so we started the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. And it's focused on on two areas, um, neuroscience. Um, and you can see that already if you go to uh, MIT, you can see the McGovern Institute for Brain Research there. Um, and then the other aspect is um, information technology for the betterment of humanity, uh, basically IT for good. And uh, and so we're it's early days, but we're looking for you know opportunities in which we can uh, use some of the foundation money to to do good in the world uh, when it comes to technology. Um, and interestingly, when you think of you know the first part neuroscience uh, and also IT, in between of that uh, is artificial intelligence. And so we're we're looking at unique ways in which uh, AI can be used for good, not. There's lots of stories of how it can be used for bad, but uh, we're, we're looking for, for good as well. So um, it's great to, I, you know, with the foundation, with this book, really trying to promote uh, my father's legacy. I think there's a lot of great stories uh, that, you know, he did. And I think there's a lot of f future with the foundation and we'll be do doing a lot of good in the world. Well, thank you both so much for uh, being on Download and talking about the book. It's not We don't usually do segments like this, but I, I had lunch, lunch with you both, and I really wanted to talk about Pat McGovern. And I'm glad that we were, we were able to. Glenn Rifkin, thank you for writing Future Forward. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. And Patrick McGovern, thanks for being on. I know you listened to some of the podcasts. Now you've been on one. I listened to a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Jason. Appreciate yeah. you having us. All right. Before we go... One last segment, the Fuzzy Puppy Update. I think that you've enjoyed, hopefully, that conversation that we had with Patrick and Glenn. But before we go anyway, we're going to make you feel happy and fuzzy with the Fuzzy Puppy Update. It is cat-related again. My apologies to people who only like dogs and don't like cats. But this is too good. It is a story... I went down a rabbit hole here. This is a little bit like the uh, Ungenius podcast that Mike and Steven do, where you land on a wikipedia page and uh are trapped there for a long time because somebody sent in a uh, a link to a story about the most british video ever which involves a policeman helping 
uh, Larry the Cat get back into number 10 Downing Street after he got locked out. It happened during Sky News's live broadcast. The cat was sitting in front of the f- world famous door where the Prime Minister of Great Britain lives at number 10 Downing Street, waiting patiently for someone to be let in. And, uh, Somebody, uh, the the officer guarding the door outside alerted somebody inside, and they uh, then they let the the cat in. But meanwhile, British TV viewers are sitting there thinking, uh, "Hey, dude, right behind you, there's a cat. There's a cat there. Somebody gonna let the cat in? Somebody gonna let the cat in?" And finally, they the the uh, security person opens the door. The cat goes into number ten Downing Street. It's all fine. What I didn't really realize is Larry the cat is super famous he is the chief mouser to the cabinet office he was i think found as a stray and now he's officially the uh the mouser and greeter of the prime minister's residence at 10 downing street and although he was uh brought in by the previous prime minister david cameron they made it clear that he belonged to 10 downing street and so now Theresa may the current prime minister gets to uh cohabitate with larry the cat and i uh if you look at his uh wikipedia page they've got one of those biographical info boxes on the side that that has <laughs> a picture of larry and his title he's the incumbent chief mouser to the cabinet office um preceded by sybil and uh and his occupation is mouser he's about 11 years old born around january 2007 his nationality by the way is british so larry the cat i am delighted that there's an official uh 10 downing street cat it's great with 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 a very serious photo on wikipedia you should go click through look at that he's got a little uh got a little bow tie yeah he's all as dressed he should up. jason as he should yeah that's the bow tie is the last thing in the minds of the mice before he kills them and eats them (laughs) Uh, oh boy that took a turn anyway uh, that is it for this episode of download Uh, thank you for listening thank you to Patrick and Glenn for coming on and uh, thank you to Steven for being a part of this uh, totally different kind of download episode thank you yeah it was a lot of fun All right, and we will be back in a week. And until then, we will keep watching the headlines so you don't have to. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.